You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Moore, and I am joined as always by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Holly, how are you today? Hey, Robert. I'm doing really good. How are you doing today? I'm good. I just finished putting together a little Ikea desk. Ooh. So, and did it, yeah. how long did it take to put it together? Not super long. This one you needed to like make holes to put screws in, which was weird. So what took the longest mm. was going and finding like a little drill to make those because I've never known an Ikea thing to need that before. Oh. But that's all right. But so look, now I've got, well, you guys say look. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> envision this tape, uh, little desk I've made. So, that's awesome. Yeah. No, I'm, Doing well. Good, good. What uh, what's been exciting or or noteworthy going on at the Oxhandler household? We're doing really, we're doing pretty good actually. Um, we actually just celebrated Oliver's fourth birthday last weekend, and so that was a lot of fun. We had some friends and some family come over and got a chance to just celebrate sweet Oliver turning four. Um, yeah. and I love I so I will say I'm not like a huge. I don't go over the top in terms of like planning and prepping and, you know, doing all the things I used to, like with Callie's first couple of birthdays for sure, but now not so much. But um, one of the things that I love to do for their birthdays is to like base it on the theme of whatever their favorite book was for that year. And so we always, we all, and that helps me to kind of remember, you know, what their favorite books were like during those seasons of life. But so this one, we did Little Blue Truck. Do y'all have that book? We do. Oh, okay. Awesome. So that is like Oliver's favorite book and there's all the different like versions of it. And so, so we kind of had those up and around and we, you know, did like a little, they have some like downloadable things for birthday parties that are connected to the book. So that was fun. We got to do some little games and it was just so fun. And then we always like with that theme, we always give away the books as like our favors so that, you know, that's cool. Yeah. So the, the families get a copy of it or um, in this case we knew since it was kind of popular, we had a couple of them um, out, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. So, so we did that and I have just kind of, you know, I feel I keep feeling like I know last week you asked like how I'm doing with like the rhythm and like getting into this this research leave and I feel like even more now I'm like finding that rhythm and then getting a lot done and it feels really good um, to get some things out the door that I've been working on for a long time so I've been celebrating yeah. that too so yeah well I know obviously I've been celebrating along with you for some I of those know. the, the yeah. bits that we talk about um just as friends but yes I will I'll put in a little plug I don't know if you are cool with this but I'm oh. gonna put in a little plug uh, <laughs> that everybody should go and subscribe to your new newsletter mm. I know oh. you've started doing that and so you're a couple of the projects you're working on that is helpful and yes you know, everybody could use a little bit more snippets from Holly in their life. And so Aww. everybody should go to your website and subscribe to your newsletter. Oh, Robert, thank you so much. That's really kind of you. I of course. appreciate that. Well, I had one question for you that I wanted to okay. ask just to kind of throw you, I don't know, not to throw you for a loop, but 
um, just to. No, I love it. I always <laughs> I feel like I'm brainstorming questions, and uh-huh. so here you go. Okay. Catch me off guard. Yep. What books or music are you listening to, or what? What are, what's bringing you life right now? Whether it's a yeah, either a book or a musician or a song or something. That is a great question. I am currently reading a book called. This is going to sound so whatever. Okay. The Neuroscience of Human Relationships by Dr. Louis Cozzolino. I don't know if that's how you say it, but I kind of assume it is. Uh, I sent you actually a screenshot. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. The other day, but I love kind of reading about how we impact each other and things like that. And particularly with the brain, like how that, how like attachment and just our relationships and, you know, every interaction that we have mm-hmm. impacts and helps to shape the people around us and things like that. And so I'm really excited. I've just kind of started. I'm a couple chapters in, but there's already some really good stuff in there. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And it's always, and it's just inspiring to that's- think like, hey, this stuff really matters. Like how I interact with people matters, things like that, you know? Yeah. No, that's really good. I think I'm going to need to add that to my list. So thank you for yeah. that. That's Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. Good. What about what about you? So I wasn't ready for you to flip that. Isn't that so funny? <laughs> Every time, because I feel like that's always, I, know. I always ask you a question and then you flip it and I think, oh, how You're did like, I not have the answer I this? know, right? I know. It's funny how that works. But, I know. Yeah. So right now I'm reading Seth Haynes' new book, The Book of Waking Up, um, which yeah. is just so good. I am loving this book right now. And I'm really excited because we may or may not be getting a chance to talk with him soon. So mm-hmm. that's fun. But I would say that that is in a lot of ways bringing me life, just reading this book and just thinking, you know, more intentionally about the ways in which we attach to things that, you know, may not necessarily be uh, the best for us to attach to. So That's awesome. Yeah. So anyways, and I guess I should say too, some of the stuff that I have recently been learning from our guest for this week, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you like that segue there? Um, No, it's great. But this week we have Dr. Jerome uh, Libba on and he's coming on to talk with us about, primarily about his book, Whole Identity, a Brain-Based Enneagram Model for Holistic Human Thriving. But he talks about a whole bunch of other things. Um, tied yeah. to that too. And I think we're going to have space to keep the conversation going perhaps after this week. So that's exciting. Yeah. I, I've i talked before on the show when we've had episodes about Enneagram stuff that like my kind of initial stance was like, uh, okay, another like identity profile thing, right? And I, mm-hmm. people tend to use those as like very prescriptive and I don't love that. And so for a while I was like, okay, whatever. I don't care that much. But so the 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 first time that I said, okay, I'm going to like dig into this and see what it's about was a workshop of Jerome's that mm-hmm. him and his brother put on. Mm-hmm. So he, it's really obviously fascinating, right? But they take kind of the Enneagram wheel and Jerome maps neuroscience onto it, like yep. parts of the brain. And then his brother, who's a pastor, maps the Trinity onto it, which obviously they both can speak to mm-hmm. some of both of those. But, and I thought that was a really interesting way to say, okay, there's brain function in here. Like we can understand it from things like that. And to map the Trinity onto it, obviously from a faith-based context is like very interesting. And so I think it gives a little more context rather than like, oh, just you're a, you are a two. And so you always mm, do these things, right? Yeah. Like that's kind of the, which friend's character, you know, like yeah. stuff like that is where you're like, okay, that's not that helpful. But if you can look at it in terms of 
okay, different areas and you are a whole person, you have kind of all of these areas and just Mm -hmm. where do you kind of tend towards and how do you emphasize the other parts and things like that, right? I mean, that then lends it to like, we can use this to grow and Mm -hmm. things like that. So, So, all right. All right. Enjoy our... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we'll get out of the way and let y'all enjoy um, this episode with Dr. Jerome Libba. Hey, welcome back to the show. So this week we have Dr. Jerome Libba, who is a both a complex neurological patient and a functional neurologist. He received his doctoral degree in chiropractic in 2014, and he is now the owner and clinician of Thrive NeuroHealth. His faith is woven throughout his story in compelling ways, and he is the author of Whole Identity, a brain-based Enneagram model for holistic human thriving. And Robert and I are so excited to have Jerome here on the show with us. So welcome, Jerome. How are you today? Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, my honest answer to that question is, is, is experiencing a little bit more of a day as a patient than a clinician, uh, but mm. at the same time, uh, very, very happy to be on the phone call with you guys. Yeah, or the podcast. Or yeah, the podcast. It's all you know, of the above. All it's the 2020. Above. It's like I, I, my wife keeps making fun of me when I say videotape something, and she's like, "Do you realize most people don't even know what a videotape is?" <laughs> I'm 36, and I'm coming to the terms awesome. with the fact that there are people that are having children that weren't alive when Shrek came out. Mm, oh, Put that into perspective. Very I'm true. Old. I'm getting old. Yeah. It's crazy. So, yeah. but I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're so excited to have you. And yeah. yeah, so, so glad that you're here with us. Well, I know we have a lot of content missing from the bio. You have a very interesting and complex story and history. And um, I really wanted to make room for you to be able to share your fascinating story. So will you mind telling us a little bit about your background and what sure. led you into this line of work? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, it's going to, for anybody who's hearing it for the first time, it either sounds very convoluted or the start to a strange joke or a, a movie that failed getting, uh, getting greenlit. But um, it's actually that I am a white African-American refugee kid from Congo whose name happens to be Jerome, an identical twin, uh, a digital animation undergrad who went into music full-time and became a doctor because I was a patient who couldn't find a good doctor. Um, so that's the bullet points. Um, but a little fleshed out is I was originally born in South Africa uh, in the early 80s. Um, my parents are Zimbabwean. Mom, British by birth, but Zimbabwean raised when she was two. My dad's side of the family uh, was in Zimbabwe for the last 400 years, uh, and admittedly so because they came from the Dutch and the Netherlands areas, and they were unfortunately part of those people who colonized that part of the world. But raised with a really interesting story, my dad um, fought in the Rhodesian Bush War for a little over a decade um, on the side of trying to liberate uh, the country for a healthy future and actually moved us out of South Africa because of his disagreement with apartheid, moved us into Zaire, into the Congo, which is a little bit out of the frying pan, into the fire sort of thing in sub-Saharan Africa, Um, but specifically did that to work for a job for three years uh, to be able to get a vacation to the States in order to move us to the U.S. to get us out of a lot of the conflict zones in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Because for those of your listeners who don't know, um, most of sub-Saharan Africa Uh, There are a lot of white folks there. There are a lot of tons of different types of folks. Um, But the reality is what there isn't is a middle class. So if you're either wealthy or poor, uh, depending on that side of the equation that you fall onto, it can be a very interesting experience. We were not on the wealthy side. So my dad had 
the inclination of my mom as well that the best bet was to get us to the States. So in the early 90s, we, January of 1990, we immigrated with $100 in two suitcases, fled the Congo on asylum status, uh, and came to the States as refugees with uh, two suitcases, a bipolar grandmother and a parrot. And we landed in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, in the middle of a, a storm that was snowing. My dad was 35. He'd never even seen snow. So uh, it ended up being a very interesting thing to come to the States as a third culture kid. I look like a very classic Midwestern white guy with a beard, but my dad spoke 13 languages and nine of them were tribal. So it was a really interesting space to grow up in. Fast forward, I love digital animation and movies, got a degree in that. I uh, ended up getting married at 21 and taking on a 12-year-old as my first child. Uh, and when you are working on a digital animation portfolio and trying to raise a teenager, one of those things comes first. So I decided to forego that. Went into music full-time with my brothers after we had uh, integrated David into our lives. And the music stopped overnight as a result of a different experience that happened. Uh, had some really great success with it, but those things changed. And ended up, after a long story, that at this point I was 25, 26. And I had been experiencing a little over 100 independent full-blown migraines per year. And about 250 headaches throughout the year. So about mm. three, three weeks of, of the year without a headache or a complex migraine. And after going to 21 specialists over nine years, got a diagnosis for what's known as a Chiari malformation, a couple of undiagnosed post-concussion uh, traumatic brain injuries, which can sometimes happen when you get run over by a car when you're eight and hit by a couple of different drunk drivers before you're 21, and found out I'm a complicated human being. And my neck and my brain have had some, some issues, and unfortunately, no one really knows what to do with me. So... I decided if I couldn't find a doctor that knew what to do with me, I would become that doctor. Loved the approach of the alternative for the chiropractic, but they did not know how to handle a complex case. Loved the approach of the traditional neurologist, but they had no idea how to do rehab on a complex case for wellness. So I decided to go and get a doctorate in chiropractic and then pursue seven postgraduate board certifications and fellowships and degrees in what's called functional neurology, which is kind of like a personal trainer for the brain. I just help teach people how to use their brain without drugs or surgery. And now I live in a world where I specialize in complex, unresolved cases like myself, uh, specifically nonverbal autism, pediatric brain injury, concussion, stroke, movement disorders, and then integrating a lot of that with the neuropsych to help people with uh, depression, anxiety, and PTSD that generally happens post-concussion. So that is most of what I made up while I was sitting in a Waffle House this morning Gosh. trying to figure out what to talk to you guys about. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah, it's obviously quite quite a story. But yeah. what I love about it, I mean, I've I've been to a workshop of yours, right? And you talked about, you know, you said I I'm I never just wanted to learn a bunch of things. Like that's not kind of how I'm wired. But I started really digging into learning about things because I wanted to help people, right? To know how to do that. And mm -hmm. I have to tell you, I don't know if I've told you this, but when you said that, my wife, who was next to me, turned and stared straight at me and said, probably too loud, she said oh, I get it because that's very similar to, you know, I have a background in music and, th and then mm -hmm. decided, hey, I'm going to learn all these things about counseling because I wanted to learn how to help people. So I love that, like, well, I couldn't mm -hmm. find a good doctor, so I decided to become one, right? Like mm -hmm. using that, uh, you know, back part of your story and saying this is going to influence now what I do with my whole life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's the classic saying of uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And, mm -hmm. you know, you talk about reinventing yourself. It's either that or... You know, and as somebody who I've been honest and transparent about this with uh, different audiences that I speak to, that I've wrestled with depression and anxiety for most of my adult life, including a suicide attempt that wasn't successful, fortunately. 
um, which was pre-kids. My wife is an incredible person. Mm -hmm. My family are incredible people. But, you know, mental and emotional health is hard. And um, kids are a good anchor. Um, so, yeah, it's one of those things that sometimes you have to figure yeah. out how to reinvent yeah. yourself if you're planning on staying. So. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I love mm-hmm. the, the complexity around um, your story, too, and just the ways that the resilience that you've had through so many different layers through, you know, your physical health, your emotional health and mental health. And, you know, and, and I know there are pieces of your story, too, that maybe we'll get into a little bit more. Um, but you you've certainly what I've heard from from you in various spaces, you've been very transparent. Um, and that resilience is just beautiful. So I'm, I'm really, really, really grateful for that. It's uh, it's been a team effort to be fair. It's uh, mm-hmm. obviously a lot of internal effort, but a lot of good community support and strategy as well. Yeah, oh, that's good. I was going to ask, you know, you would just start talking about functional neurology and, yeah. you know, it being like this coaching for the brain. Can you talk about like what that is, like what functional neurology is? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I think the thing is, is most people, when they go in to meet with a doctor, they're either given a pretty finite diagnosis or they're told what they can't do or what they are. It's kind of in absolutes. It's a, it's a really interesting space that, uh, that most people get into when they run into a clinician. Uh, it feels a little bit more um, specific, but not necessarily comprehensive. So when you go to a personal trainer, for instance, regardless of the state of health that you're in, they're going to kind of get a baseline and figure out what your goals are. And then their goal is to help you figure out how can I exercise the real estate and the resources and the capacity that I have to try and hit my goals. So it doesn't end up being so specific. It ends up being more goal oriented. I think is is, is kind of one of the reasons I say that. But also the reason I mentioned personal trainer specifically is because whenever anybody thinks about a personal trainer, that person is a resource, but not the source. The majority of the time that somebody is going to see some degree of improvement in their lives, it's really contingent on the work that they put in. The, the personal trainer becomes a, an advocate and becomes somebody who's going to partner with them, but not the person who bears the responsibility for actually getting in and doing the exercise. So when I talk about personal trainer for the brain, without drugs or surgery, most people don't realize like a really easy metaphor kind of, kind of case study to give you as an example is um, about 60% of the people that I work with are either pediatric head injury or nonverbal autism. Well, when you have a head injury or you're dealing with nonverbal autism, which you can argue is, is a degree of a head injury or a, or a malfunction in how the brain works, there's not a person that you're going to encounter that doesn't have factors of speech, balance, vision, hearing, those different sensory systems that are involved that are impacted. So if I'm working with a nine-year-old who's never spoken, they've had some of the best speech therapy on the planet all over the country, and they're not speaking. Functional neurology says, well, what systems are involved that help to get speech online? Like speech is, if you're talking about the train stops on the, on the journey that is brain development, speech is not the first stop. <laughs> um, a lot of the times the first stop is things like, can you stand upright? Can you weight bear? Can you move? Can you crawl? Can you move in space? Can you coordinate movement? Can your eyes move in relationship to your body and relationship to your space? So when a parent comes in with a nine-year-old who's nonverbal and I start doing exams on their balance and their vision and their hearing and their sensation to touch and go, yeah, your kid deals with a lot of sensory processing issues. They're hypersensitive to touch. They can't track a target and they can't look at you and make eye contact. They also are hypersensitive to sound and light. All of those things are systems that come online way before speech. Um, Because if you think about it, it's very, very rare 
that a child is going to learn to form a complex emotion or a complex thought before they learn to walk. So when we're talking about any human being on the planet, if I go back and say, can we make sure that your balance is as good as possible, that your coordination of big muscles and fine motor small muscles is good, can we make sure that all those systems that are kind of involved in developing your brain before you ever even learn to talk, has anybody looked at those? And then we say, well, if there's any opportunities there, if we start to make improvements in those areas, do we see improvements in the big picture? For sure. So it's kind of like looking at the brain like a piano and saying, instead of just taking a general kind of shotgun approach, let's maybe pull one string out at a time, see if as we tune that, the whole system works a little bit better. So kind of ends up being systems-based, sensory-based, but very, very specific. Gosh, yeah, it's so good. I love the way that you you unpack things and explain them in very like understandable ways, which I'm sure is part of why you know your work has caught on, even though it's very like neuroscience heavy, right? Which yeah. is awesome. And speaking of that, you've you've started doing a lot of other things with your brother, and then obviously this book and things like that, right? Where you combine neuroscience and psychology and like identity formation and faith, right? With like the podcast and all the Enneagram stuff. Can you talk some about how like neuropsychology influences our identity formation, faith? Like what made you say, hey, I'm going to kind of look at all these things overlapping and then talk about that? Yeah. You know, uh, the interesting thing, Robert, is uh, the intersections that happened for me were I kept getting into spaces spiritually, clinically as a doctor, clinically as a patient, where I would ask questions and the answer would always either be, I don't know, or that's not a legitimate question, or (laughs) you can't ask that question, or this is just the way it is. And Mm -hmm. me going, um... I'm not a rocket surgeon, but I'm going to throw it out there that I don't think that that's exactly how it works. Um, so if you're not going to help me answer those questions, then I'm going to do some, you know, some kind of work on my own, which is funny from an Enneagram perspective. Most people see my work and think I'm super high in a five. Five is my lowest number by a mile, and we can explain why later. Um, but no, I'm not a five. I'm a person who is driven by saying, are people being taken care of? Are they being loved? Are they being valued? Are we healing the things that are broken in them? Uh, And honestly, for me, I kept getting into these spaces as a recovering charismatic. Um, I went to a non-denominational Pentecostal kind of church that uh, it wasn't really a good service till somebody started doing laps and somebody was standing on a chair. And if you needed to learn how to pray in (laughs) tongues, they told you to start with the economy Honda should have bought a Toyota and just repeat until the Holy Spirit comes. Mm. And I'm like, um... I'm a little confused as to the the, the efficacy of this. Um, so what happened was I kept going, I have more curiosity, but I'm not getting any clarity. So in the chiropractic side, love the idea of, you know, you adjust somebody and they get better. But what happens when you can't adjust somebody? You put them in the hospital with an adjustment, which happens to me. What happens when you are in a faith-based space where believing hard enough and, and, and praying for healing is the answer. And then you bury parents and you experience migraines every three days. And then what happens as a clinician where somebody's like, well, those things aren't connected and you're going, but man, I keep seeing them show up and it feels like they're super connected. So yeah. in all of those spaces as a believer, as a patient and a doctor, it was more looking at what everybody kept speaking in as absolutes and me going, I don't think that that's true because if it doesn't apply to one person, then there's something wrong with the equation. Because if we look at physics Mm. or quantum entanglement or all these other things, if you're talking about a a law of the universe, there are no outliers. There's just failed exponent or there's shortcomings in terms of the explanation, but gravity always works until you get outside of gravitational pull. 
So if there's a rule that doesn't apply to 100% of the people that can be utilized for really healthy practical applications, then I don't think we need to keep telling the people and the patient and the believer that they need to change. Maybe we have to change the context of what we're using as a guideline. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. You, I mean, you already, we were going to ask about faith and how that ties in, but you just so beautifully kind of started to weave right into that. Um, and I actually want to jump straight from this piece into some of the work that we really want to hear you talk about too, which <laughs> around the Enneagram. So we have talked about the Enneagram a bit on this show and we've had Dr. John Singletary and we've had Chris Hewitt's come on to talk about it um, from their various approaches and trainings and the work that they do. Um, but you have a very different approach to the Enneagram that I think is fascinating. And after having just gone through this whole profile with you, it's, I feel like there's so many other layers that, yeah, Robert's picking up the book, y'all. We can all see it. And there's just other layers to it that just kind of, I mean, as I told you on the call, I'm like, I'm going to need to think through this for a little bit and like just sure. let it sift through. But I, so I want to dive into that. But for those who didn't hear the previous episodes and perhaps regardless if they heard the previous episodes, do you mind giving us like a brief overview of the Enneagram and just sure. what this is and, yeah. um, and that can weave into some of your work? Yeah, and I, I absolutely encourage your listeners to, to listen to John and Chris because I'm, I'm still in the space where I'm like, why do you have me on this podcast if you had these other people on me? <laughs> so good. Um, and it's, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing with the Enneagram is a lot of folks are familiar with different personality typologies like strengths, finders, disc, Myers-Briggs, Berkman, other things like that. Uh, I think the reason a lot of folks have gravitated so heavily towards the Enneagram uh, is it gives you much more of a handle and much more of a resource around the why we do things than just the mechanics, just kind of the, the objective information of you tend to be an otter or a driver or a basket or whatever the case may be. You know, there's a lot of different ways you can look at it. I make light of it because at the end of the day, I'm like, I don't think that's me. I think that's a little bit short-sighted. <laughs> um, I think the reason, and here's the thing, every human being on the planet regardless of what their background is, loves to talk about themselves or loves to hear about themselves or at least wants to hear about a healthier version of themselves. So the ego is a bit strong and the Enneagram is very helpful about talking about yourself. Um, so it's both a pro and a con, but uh, in all reality, I think the reason that it's been so, so popularized, um, so, and it's been around for a long time, but it's been more popularized in the Enneagram of personality around the number-based system in the last 50 years. Um, my book gives a, a pretty brief but succinct history of, of that, um, which we won't go into here. But the reason that a lot of folks are, are connecting with it is it, it shows you nine different ways of kind of engaging in the world. Um, to quote Russ Hudson, it shows you the box that you're in and helps you get out of that box. Uh, so I think it helps people see that there are formation, there's identity pieces, there's strategies and coping mechanisms that have existed that allowed us to kind of establish the way that we decide to engage and help create safe environments for ourselves and thrive. The reality is the Enneagram is also really, really good at letting you know how you can kind of camouflage and how you can manipulate your environment and how you can kind of shift into something that may not be the true version of yourself. It's a, it's a safety mechanism and then starts to discuss how can you take those layers of defense mechanisms and, and kind of strategies and coping mechanisms off and, and get to the deeper core of, of who you are and how you operate and, and how you can become a healthier person. So it's really fascinating the way that works. Yeah. And I think what I love about 
your work, right, is I'm one of the people that falls in the category of tends to be pretty uh, skeptical of like personality types, things like that, right? Because it does, you know, people kind of then just rest in that, right? Oh, I'm just, I'm this, and therefore I have to act this way, right? Um, And I think, you know, when I first came across your work and said, oh, I'm going to go to this workshop, things like that. It was, you know, the combination of neuroscience and faith and the Enneagram, which mm-hmm. you did really beautifully, right? You like drew it out and I still have those worksheets. Um, I think mm-hmm. when I got back from yeah, it, I texted texting pictures yeah. to Holly. Um, <laughs> can you talk some about that and like what makes kind of your approach different than, you know, just, oh, or find your number and then follow this account that tells you you should do this job or you mm-hmm. should, you're this friend's character, you know, things yeah. like that. Yeah. And we end up kind of, you know, it's funny, I tell people, especially because one of the things that's happened with the Enneagram that's ended up it be, becoming so much more popular, especially in the last five years when it kind of hit a tipping point, is uh, the church has kind of turned it into the modern day WWJD bracelet. Uh, and everybody puts their number on their wrist. Like I self-identify with a seven. The only way I can have a good time with you is if we're having a good time. And it's like, okay, <laughs> you're a comprehensive human being. <laughs> Um, you know, the very first time I got introduced to the Enneagram nine years ago, it was uh, by a friend and everybody's got a friend who really, really likes the Enneagram and they're very, very subtle about it. Let's be honest, which is not true at all. Um, and the very first time that I heard about it, the very first question that popped into my mind when I, when I heard about it was, well, I know I've got an ethos that says I'm made in the image of God, divinity, universal essence, consciousness, whatever word you use. There's, there's, there's a, a thread and an essence and a theme of all living matter, whether you call it Christ or you call it the Big Bang. I don't really mind. Um, personally, I think there's a common ground in terms of how every human being interacts. Mine, which is descriptive for me, but not prescriptive for you guys to, listening, to quote my older brother, um, is that I'm made in the image of God. So what number is God? And I was like, okay, well, why has nobody answered that question? Because if the church is one of the heavy consumers of this, and they believe I'm made in the image of God, what number is God? And everybody all of a sudden goes, well, God's this number. And I'm like, hello. If, and this is a, a phrase that I would use for that is, and this is applying spiritually, clinically, everyday life in an Enneagram world. If somebody speaks in absolutes about something or makes something reductive, they either don't understand it or they've oversimplified it. And clinically speaking, Enneagram and spiritually, anytime somebody speaks in an absolute or they create a reductive language, I'm automatically going, I don't know if I trust you as a content expert. Because the more I learn about neuroscience and and brain function, the more I realize I don't have an idea of what the hell is going on Mm -hmm. in somebody's comprehensive neurology. I'm just doing my best to get oriented Mm -hmm. to the environment that changed before I even started saying the last sentence. Never mind the last lifetime that a person has lived. Mm. So coming yeah. into a bit more humility. So the reason being was I kept going, okay, most people clinically that I come into contact with are treating somebody in a system or a silo-based mindset. So the reason that they're not seeing successes with a patient is because they, they keep treating an organ or a system or an isolated part of the human. When I look at the Enneagram, everybody's looking at an individual number, but they're not looking at a comprehensive whole. When I look at the spiritual side of things, everybody's telling me there are particular parts of what's happening, like pushing back and going, you keep telling me God's male, but Genesis says that God, we were made in the image of both male and female aspects of who God is. So if God's exclusively male, how do I reconcile that with the entire other half of the gender equation? And even then on the gender continuum, 
how am I having a conversation around gender fluidity and doing that impartially without getting so dogmatic and, you know, so much rhetoric in the conversation. I can't even have a lucid conversation because I'm speaking in absolutes with reductive language from the beginning. So I think for me, it always came. I, I might have said a couple of things there quick that offended some folks who are listening. I apologize. I'll slow down and say it slower so it offends you more. The, the thing that I'm saying is in all of these situations, I wanted to keep coming in with the opportunity to go. I've been on the planet a very short time. Mm. I don't know if it's fair to speak so adamantly in absolutes or reductive language. So maybe we can look at the Enneagram as a holistic space. And instead of you being a number, you're efficient in that particular nature, but you still have access and capacity in all those other spaces because I don't want to function as one aspect of who God is. I want to hear the language that I can do greater things in Christ or greater things in Jesus and go, well, how the hell do I do that? Because right now I'm just trying to make it to Tuesday, you know, so, and just trying to create more resources so that I can hopefully create more, more solutions or have access to more resources in order to be able to create more solutions. Yeah. Mm, Man, that's really good. So I'm trying to take kind of these pieces of what you're saying and trying to maybe bring it down just in thinking about where our listeners are. Because Robert and I are familiar with your work and and love how you've set the stage that, you know, we aren't just one number. Our number is not our identity. We are not, like I am not A2. And, you know, no one is a particular number, but that we have elements and pieces each. So can you talk a little bit about like how, what this actually looks like in uh, your work and how yeah. this breaks down? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like the, the beautiful thing with, with looking at the Enneagram or looking at like any spiritual face set that has a Trinitarian component, which a fair amount of them actually do. The Trinity is not an exclusive concept to, to Christianity for anybody who doesn't know that. It's just, it happens to be a common, common thread, but also spirituality, brain function and the Enneagram all have, Kind of triadic components. Even physics has a lot of triadic components, neutron, proton, electron, that sort of thing. So one of the easy things to kind of help folks with is you can look at a whole and then look at the three primary parts and get a pretty high level appreciation. So if you look at the planet and assume that there's three continents, if somebody wants to have a conversation, you can almost always metaphorically leverage the idea of what's the whole and what are the three primary parts before we drill down into the weeds. So if you look spiritually, You've got a masculine, feminine, and reproductive component of the Trinity. You've got a you've got a you've got a, a thinking father. You've got a feeling maternal space in the Holy Spirit, and then you've got a practical, living, embodied person in Jesus. From a brain perspective, you've got a left brain, a right brain, and a brainstem. The left brain correlates pretty heavily with the father, pretty heavily with how we think. The right brain, pretty heavy with an effeminate or feminine maternal nurturing holy spirit kind of non-verbal space and then the brainstem is kind of how every human being shows up physically in the world their physiology how your heart beats how your body works you know the metaphor of, of of christ being the physical example of the trinity the brainstem pretty much shows up in a placeholder very similar but if you take all of that language off the table and somebody goes i have zero association with spirituality i have zero concept of what you're talking about with how the brain works I can talk to my four-year-old of which I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old and a 27-year-old who I started with at 12. So also know what a 14-year-old looks like when they think like a four-year-old. But the easiest way to talk about it is what are you thinking? What are you feeling? And how are you acting or reacting? Every human being on the planet has the capacity to think in their own way. 
feel in their own way, and then act consciously or unconsciously as a reaction in their own way. And nobody in any real sense of, of, of a normal experience as a human being thinks that those things happen uh, as their only experience or their only encounter with the world. There's no human being that goes, I can feel, but I can't think. Or I can think, but I don't act. Or I act, but I have no concept of thinking and feeling. So when you want to consolidate or kind of you know, distill concepts around spirituality or neuroscience or the Enneagram, you're still constantly coming back to how do I think, feel, and act or react? And what synonyms or placeholders are we using for those conversations? And you can really go anywhere from that just by starting with think, feel, and act as a human. And then you're, you're going to comprehensively have the at least the continental or the global perspective. And then you can drill down into what country are we in? What neighborhood are we in? What, what kind of plan are we taking in terms of the trip that we're trying to go back and forth between? Uh, and then you can get into the weeds from there, but start with think, feel, and act. Yeah, that's really good. That's really helpful. Yeah. Just starting with each of those pieces. Well, no, that's, that's helpful. And, and even just thinking even further, how we, you know, within, each of those triads, you know, we've talked about on these previous episodes how there's nine different types and that, you know, we've talked obviously just a moment ago about how we're not one specific, but there are ways in which each of these different types, you know, kind of are a part of us and, and we may be more efficient in some numbers or in some approaches and less efficient in others, as I just learned about a moment ago, um, which was fun. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I like how you said fun kind of like we you went to your personal trainer and you were like yeah it was a, it was a good workout and by good workout I mean like very unenjoyable but necessary <laughs> no 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 see this is my age right. leaning into the discomfort yeah. of growth right yeah, it's a good yeah. thing <laughs> we broke a sweat together it was I know that's right oh, I love it Y'all, so, I mean, like, I can just say a little bit about, I guess, what it was, and maybe you can expand on this, like, mm -hmm. how um, Dr. Jerome, what he walked through with me was kind of identifying the top numbers, the ones that I'm most efficient in, the ones that are really easy, and I have just habitually grown comfortable with using over the course of my life, and then there are some numbers where I've really just... You know, I just am not as strong in them. And, and I think when Robert did, went to his training, it was similar where when he was sending me those pictures, the worksheets, it was like, these are the numbers that I'm, you know, much stronger in. And these are the, the numbers that I may have scored a little bit lower on. But I think it, it, what's so interesting, and we're probably going to need a whole episode actually just talking about this. So maybe, maybe I'm going to hit like the pause button right there and maybe we'll just end up scheduling another episode to go into some more of the details of your whole model and the approach and sure. um, if that would be okay with you. Yeah, totally. Okay. Totally. Okay. I would just encourage everybody who's kind of hearing this and going, I'm, I'm not kind of, I'm still not oriented to exactly what's different. Mm -hmm. um, it's just helping the, the analogy or the metaphor that I use is that most people when they engage with the Enneagram are told what country they live in, but they aren't resourced with how to travel the world. Um, and that was actually based off of a quote that Mark Twain has that the short version of it is the antidote to prejudice is travel. Um, because most people are just really, really familiar with their particular portion of the world. And yeah. to be honest, I think what's happened a lot in the Enneagram world is the hyper-focused meme culture and reductionary view of what a number is has actually unintentionally created a lot of nationalism where people only prescribe to their particular numbers. So they want to keep people in who look like them and keep people out who don't look like them. But they're doing it through some sort of really 
unintentional bias around the particular people group that they they gravitate towards, but it's still a very superficial perspective. Because the more people learn about the Enneagram, then the country or the number that you're living in may actually be the unhealthy version of you dealing with stress and it's not even the honest version of where you're supposed to be living. You may be supposed to be in California, but you've lived in Atlanta for the longest time because that's just habitual for you. So the reason I say that with the, the whole model is looking at yourself as a world. You have three continents, nine countries. The question is, are you traveling to any other areas of what's naturally available to you? Or are you staying in one town for your entire life? Because if you do, the probability of you being prejudiced against yourself and then projecting that on other people, because your, your brain and your experience as a human being has done such a good job of going, I had a bad experience at that restaurant or I had a bad experience in that country or I had a bad experience in that particular state. So those people are not my people. But what you're actually talking about is how that part of who you naturally are has had a negative experience or a lack of positive experiences. So you just don't travel there because you don't know if it's going to be fun or you definitely know it's not going to be fun. So the conversation lets us lean more into, are you even aware of the map that you have access to? And what does it look like to have that conversation so you can travel a little bit more and become a more well-rounded, healthy human being, you know? Yeah. It's so good. And I know you've talked about changing in like three to 5% a year, right? So even talking about that, right, can you travel? But I think you in when I've heard you talk about it, you've said, you know, that existing in a different nature, right? Like if I'm going to use a five nature or whatever, right, like that takes more energy, that's not as efficient. And so then kind of defaulting back to where I feel safest or where I'm most efficient, but making sure that I do those so that we're, you know, kind of flexing those muscles as well, instead of just saying, okay, well, I'm only going to be here. And that's all I ever need to do because those other ones suck. Right. You know? Or like, yeah. I'm not good at those ones. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, I'll use myself as an example. Two is my highest number and eight and five are some of my lowest numbers. So for me to have a conversation with you guys right now about this may sound like a five conversation because it's detail oriented. That's the what of it. It's not my why. I'm having a conversation with another human being, building relationship and building value for the people who are listening, myself, you guys. I'm on autopilot right now. For me to stop doing it would take an active effort not to do it. But if you put me into a situation where somebody was going to detail all of the ways that they wanted to have an argument with me in a conflict-based space, that's my experience with eight. It's not the truth of eight. Eight is actually a beautiful special place for growth and for being able to to move into places alone. And I don't like being alone. The reason I normally don't like eight is because eights are very good at independence and I'm not. I'm an identical twin who didn't get my first bed until I was 12. So I'm used to being with other people. I have shared a womb with somebody for nine months. Um, Mm. So it's one of those things where it's really important when you mention that, Robert, that when people start looking at the entire spectrum of their profile rather than just their top number, a really easy handhold to be able to understand this is your highest numbers have a higher probability of leading you into burnout because of excess use. Your lowest numbers have a higher probability of creating fatigue when you engage them because you're not used to using them. So if I know that as a two or somebody efficient in a two rather than a two, somebody who's efficient in a two, then I go, what does it look like for me to intentionally pull back from how much I'm available to people to avoid burnout? because I know I'm conscientiously and unconsciously biased towards it. 
And then if I encounter a space that feels uncomfortable and I have to be by myself for an extended period of time, which is like six minutes for me, um, then what does it look like for me to break a sweat, be fatigued and realize that's not going to kill me? Those pieces of information are really helpful to not only know where to turn the volume down in certain parts of my life, but where to turn the volume up and realize if I get a little bit of feedback, it's not going to eat me. It's going to be okay. Yeah. So one thing before we wrap, because we want to have you back on and we can dive yeah. a lot deeper now that we've kind of covered that. But I want I wanted also to ask, so I know you just took kind of a chunk of time off in December, right, in terms of yeah. self-care yeah. and things like that, which obviously we we believe in here in the show and we've talked about that. But you've also written about and talked about the the neuroscience and the neurotheology and all that of self-care. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about why why self-care and, and what you mean by that? So why it's important and what you mean by that, you know, if people are hearing that and saying, oh, that's all bubble baths and whatnot, but what do you sure. mean by that and why, why is that important? First off, I'm 6'2 and 270, so I can't fit into a bath. It's a really <laughs> nice idea, but it's just not, not going to happen. Uh, I told my wife if we buy a house, the requirement is there's got to be something I can fit into because that would be nice. I just don't know what a bubble bath looks like. Yeah. Um, but no, I think, you know, part of it is um, when you talk about self-care, first off, there's a couple of different pieces, but you have to delineate the difference between that and self-help. Self-help lasts normally, I mean, we're at January 13th at this point. Most people's self-help concepts are going to fizzle out in the next two to three days. Um, but a self-care concept is, is the lifetime endeavor of being a healthy human being. Uh, it's also interesting that it's really fascinating from a, from a psychology perspective to, to put the self after whatever the word is, like compassion, care, those sort of things. Because it's a lot easier for somebody to be asked, how do you care for yourself rather than do you believe in self-care? How are you compassionate with yourself rather than do you have self-compassion? Because for some reason, there's something that happens for a lot of folks that automatically goes, well, that sounds selfish or it sounds like I'm the priority. And so many people have a bias, whether it's faith-based or not, that it sounds like selfishness. And self-care and selfishness are two very, very different things. Um, so I just encourage everybody that if self-care doesn't feel good for you, then do you care about yourself? If not, that's a big question. Self-care may sound hard for you, but how do you take care of yourself? That's a really important question. If not, then, then we're, we're talking about different spaces. But for the sake of time um, for your conversation, I think for me, the biggest thing that I really push towards this is growing up in my spaces spiritually and growing up in my places clinically as a patient. I didn't get a lot of insight or resources or training or education or even flexibility to see examples of people taking care of themselves really, really well. Um, because in American culture, as a, as a business person or as a, a cultural piece, we're, we're always told up and to the right, strive for the, the success. No one rests themselves into a successful life, right? No one really knows how to vacation well in the U.S. compared to other countries. Some people do, but not often, right? PTO days are kind of the things that roll over. But spiritually speaking, I, my particular experience got raised in a culture that constantly used Job as a measuring stick for you to stop complaining and kept using Jesus as an example of what it looks like to, to keep pursuing the, the, the gospel. But no one ever mm. showed me how to process grief and suffering through, mm -hmm. the, through the Job story. Yeah. They showed me how to see Jesus overwhelmed or burned out. 
So when you end up having these examples where everything in, in, in social media culture, everything in curated Instagram posts, everything in a curated message on a Sunday morning is telling you how you can achieve this ideal you know, nuclear family or nuclear faith, but you don't have it encounter pain, suffering, grief, burnout, fatigue, anxiety, depression, suicide attempt. Those weren't parts of the conversation that when I experience that, I'm always benchmarked either personally, clinically, or spiritually against something that's supposed to be the right version of it. And that somehow is indicating where I'm missing it. Mm. Yeah. I looked at that really more than anything, and this is from, I'll answer it spiritually for the sake of time. The biggest thing that I really leveraged was going, is there examples of Jesus being overwhelmed? And are there examples of Jesus being burned out? Is there an example of Jesus being in, uh, dealing with anxiety, depression, grief, those sort of things? Because I looked at it and said, how can you take a verse like Jesus is acquainted with all suffering and say Jesus was not depressed or anxious? Because I will mm. middle finger anybody on the planet and start mm. <laughs> real strong, real strong curse words, mm. which I don't normally do, but that's one of the things that gets me <laughs> um, Two going to eight for anybody who knows it okay. Um, mm -hmm. But the reality <laughs> If Jesus is acquainted with all suffering and doesn't know what it's like to go, I'm, I'm done, or I'm depressed, or I'm anxious, then Jesus is not acquainted with all suffering. I don't care what anybody yeah. says. Metaphorically, there's got a peace. Mm -hmm. So if you look at Jesus in the garden, he's having a conversation with his parent, with his direct contact, with his primary care provider, his, his, his frame of reference for all the attachment theory, IFS, all the, the therapy language that you want to use. This is his sounding board. And not only is he physically, mentally, and emotionally in the most fatigued space he's ever been in, but he offers himself in a vulnerable position to the person he loves the most, and there is no answer. He gives that conversation, and he's met with crickets, like he doesn't get any feedback. And in that space, he's like, I can't do this. I, I know everything that I know, and I can't do this. So you're from a theological perspective, if you believe that Jesus is part of the Trinity, God is asking God if God can avoid doing what God asked God to do. So God is having doubts, right? Or at least Jesus is. So there's a lot of things there that I go, well, nobody told me that Jesus was scared. Nobody told me that Jesus didn't think he could do it and asked if somebody else could do it. And you got to understand, physically speaking, this guy should be in a hospital bed. He's that tired. He's not tired like I had a bad week. He's tired like I'm about to die. Somebody needs to triage me. And he hasn't, even, he hasn't even been arrested yet. He hasn't even been scourged. He hasn't been crucified. None of that. He's just a dude that has got a lot on his shoulders and he's overwhelmed. I know what that feels like, even in my experience as a person. But even then, that's overwhelmed. Because at that point, the difference between overwhelmed and burnout from a self-care perspective that's important to understand is he could still intentionally pursue what his goal is. He still moved forward. He took another step. But then you see him carrying the weight of his own cross and he collapses under the weight of his own cross. Mm. So I kept looking at this going, God will never give you more than you could handle. I'm like, then why did Jesus need help with his own cross? I don't get that. I don't understand how you can mm. tell me God won't yeah. give you more than you can handle. Jesus yeah. crucified and the gospel wouldn't have been made relevant to everybody who's prom promoting it in its evangelical nature and using it as a good gospel. The gospel is tied to the crucifixion. The crucifixion could not have happened if Jesus didn't get help once he burned out because he mm. collapsed. He was done. It doesn't matter what his willpower is. doesn't matter what his level of faith is. doesn't matter what he wants to do. He's toast. Mm. So for me, the whole self-care conversation was going, if we can't start 
from an origin conversation, building resources from a place that allows us to know the perfect example according to Christianity of what the gospel looks like, didn't think he could do it, couldn't do it alone, got overwhelmed, got burned out, and still had to figure out how to make that work. And a lot of times it was because somebody had to support him in that when he was fatigued. So building self-care resources, knowing that from a conceptual standpoint, I think completely changes the dialogue from going, I think you probably just need to get over it. There are other people who have it worse. Man, that's really good. That's so good. I'm a little passionate about that. I know, and I love it. I love it. I'm like, I'm just sitting here like, oh, I can't wait for this episode to come out so that I can like just listen to that and then like rewind, you know, and then listen to it again. And just, it's, I think... I think it's really good. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, I mean, and this is, this is really, really important. I think everybody is listening, regardless of where they're at, as a patient, as a believer, as a non-believer, every human being on the planet knows what it feels like to go, I don't know if I can do this. Yeah. And until somebody goes, that's okay. That's all right. That's part of the process of being human is going, I, I don't know if I want to be here. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know what my resources are. I'm uncomfortable. I'm afraid. And every single one of those things isn't met with shame, fear, or intimidation. Because so many times when somebody goes into a spiritual place, a clinical place, or a friendship-based space, you look at the church, you look at the Enneagram, or you look at a clinical space in, in somebody meeting with a doctor. How many times do people go into those spaces and they are actually met with, or the person who's in a leadership position, introduces fear, shame, or intimidation? It's really common for people. And if you get met by a doctor, a pastor, or somebody teaching you the Enneagram and what they gave you was fear, shame, or intimidation, you do not need to lean on them as an educator or a resource because they don't understand how you function as a person is not connected to those things. It's not what Jesus models. It's not what a healthy clinician models. It's not what a healthy teacher models because your identity is not based in that. Your identity is based in what you're capable of, not what you're currently doing that may or may not be effective. It's a bigger picture than that, than the current use source. I'm sorry, the current use of or utilization of a resource. It's, I'm more than my mistakes. You know, it's like this, that's not the way I want to define myself because if that's the case, then what's the point of being here? Yeah, that's really Sorry, good. again. Well, no, it's okay. I love it. I love you're it. You're good, yeah. Yeah, this is awesome. Yeah. Well, some one thing that we often like to ask folks, especially, you know, just when it clearly, like just the amount of passion that you do have for this work. And I know we've touched on a few different areas. You know, we've touched on functional neurology. We've talked, touched on the Enneagram. We've touched on self-care and, or neurotheology of self-care. And But my sense is this really, there's like this overarching umbrella that kind of gathers all of this together. And so that's really what I want to get at is in particularly looking at what exactly it is that your hope for this work is overall in your clinic, in the, the writing that you do, in your speaking events and engagement, um, your podcast, what is your hope for this work overall that you're engaged in? Yeah, you know, I mean, anecdotally, it's to help people be healthier versions of themselves, you know, to, to thrive. But a lot of people are like, that sounds cute. That's a bumper sticker. How do I do that? You know, and I don't want to introduce any more what I refer to as emotional casseroles for people. Because after a lot of people pass away in the South, everybody wants to bring you food. You know what you don't want to do? You don't want to eat. Okay. So what I'm trying to do is practically create something that somebody can sink their teeth into. So I'll give you two lines. All of the work that I do is where neuroscience meets self-care and practical application. So there has to be some science, there has to be some self-care, and it has to be practical, which there's a lot of resources that we can share with everybody on how to do that. Mm -hmm. um, the longer sentence in that 
is my work is designed to foster improvements in physical, mental, emotional, and relational health for the purpose of spiritual well-being. So when somebody engages in that, whether it's a Christian perspective, it's a Buddhist or a Zen perspective, whatever the case may be, I think almost every person that I've talked to on the planet, regardless of their faith that they ascribe to, believes that they have a soul, believes that they have a spirit. If they don't, my work isn't really for them. It's a very small group of people, and that's okay. I'm willing not to hit everybody. Um, but if you're trying to be spiritually healthy, whatever that may look like for you, it's going to be involved with how you physically take care of your body, what your mental and emotional health is, and how you intersect relationally with every human being on the planet, including yourself, internally. What is your internal relationship with yourself? How's your mind working? How's your body working? How's your soul working? And how's it all connect? So looking at that, I mean, the answer is just how can we – find ways to practically apply some self-care resources through some really good contemporary science so that we can be healthy in each of those areas. And no, it doesn't have to be everything. You know, if I was going to my personal trainer and I had a one-year goal, he's not going to try and give me every exercise on the same day. We might go over it, but then what's the plan of being able to engage each muscle group at a time and know that I'm going to get to a point where I got to take a, take a day off because I'm going to fatigue that area and move on to something else, do something dynamic and go, if I was exercising my physical body and creating a stronger immune system, could I take those same concepts and apply them to mental, emotional, and relational real estate? Absolutely. Does the comprehensive space give me a chance to be healthier and in, 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 in a space where I can achieve spiritual being? Absolutely. But three to 5%, like Robert was mentioning, is saying, if I'm investing in this and I saw three to 5% improvement year over year, would that be a good return on my investment? Yes. Doing it where I expect a 50% improvement after 21 days is a terrible idea. But doing it long-term where you can actually have some sustainable growth. I've been married 15 years. If somebody had told me 15 years ago that I could be 5% better as a husband each year, I'd be 75% better. I am not 75% better as a husband. I, I would love to say that I am, but I am not almost twice as good as I was when we started. But, but that's because a lot of the times my expectations around how much I could improve were unhealthy. That's yeah, so yeah. good. Well, we're definitely going to send an email, schedule a follow-up. So uh, mm -hmm. we'll make sure that we get that. If you want to connect with Jerome, you can find him at drjerome.com on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We'll have all those links in the show notes. If you want to connect with me, you can find me at robert-4.com or on any social media at Robert Vore. You can connect with Holly at hollyoxandler.com or on Twitter at hollyoxandler. Jerome, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? I think simply put, whenever all of this, even this conversation feels like you're, you're, you're breaking a sweat, it's a really good idea just to step back and take one deep breath. It's profound how much a single deep breath can literally change how your body is operating in the moment. Probably not something that's going to be life-threatening that you're actively engaged with, but it sure, certainly can feel that way. So if you can just take a second, take control, and the only thing you can change is whether or not you take an intentional deep breath, I would start with that. Oh, that's so good. Oh, I love yeah. that so much. And I'm going to use that this afternoon, a little later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Deep breath. Yeah. Oh, can well, I say you. one more thing? I'm yes, sorry. please. Yeah. No, go for it. Who hasn't read the book, there's an opening line. We are innately capable of wholeness. This is not about being less broken. It is about becoming more whole. And that's really the part, that. of, the part of it. Thank I you for that effort, Robert. I appreciate it, brother. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for coming on and joining us today and unpacking all of that. You're yeah. so welcome. It's such a gift. I appreciate it.
Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH Podcast at gmail.com. 